0: Asher, Dan, Ephraim, Gad, Issachar, Manasseh, Naphtali, Reuben, Simeon, Zebulun, the ten lost tribes. Where are they? Jesus said that he was sent not but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Where are they? What is God's plan for them? Let's get into it. Hello and welcome to Teacher and Zion podcast. This is Doug Hatton. And today I'd like to discuss um, the lost tribes of Israel and God's covenants with them. But before we get started, I'd like to say that it's perfectly fine to disagree or have differences of an opinion on subject matter like this. And because someone doesn't see eye to eye with me, uh, does not make them my adversary. And that they can still be my brother and sister in Christ. Um, That's a mature walk in Christ that we all need to to have. Unfortunately, we don't see much of that in the restoration in uh, LDS or our LDS culture. When someone disagrees with us on a point of doctrine, we tend to divide over it. And uh, I don't believe that this is uh, the way Jesus taught that we should be. Uh, so getting that out of the way i'd like to say that as a people um, we tend towards extremes and when discovering troubling issues in church history or church leadership some have not only walked away from the church institution uh, but have also discarded the book of mormon right along with it while others have elevated the book of mormon Almost to the point of idolatry at times. And let me just qualify that statement. And it's not an accusation against anyone. It's just something that is a concern of mine. And and whether it is the Bible with Christians or the Book of Mormon or Joseph Smith among Mormons, we can elevate books, people, people doctrines to a place that is so high that it is in the very place of God himself. I think it would be good for us to recognize that the Book of Mormon, while it may be regarded by Mormons and restoration groups as the purest book of scripture we have, the book itself never claims that it is perfect or without flaws. Even as we can see in the introduction to the record by Moroni himself, As a well-known Christian writer once said of the Bible, it is less important to know the book of the Lord than it is to know the Lord of the book. And so it is with the Book of Mormon. It was written to testify of Christ rather than Christ testifying of it. It has been suggested by some that if something is not found in the Book of Mormon, either isn't true or is somehow unimportant. While the fullness of the gospel message and the simple and plain doctrine of Christ is found there, the record itself makes it very clear that it does not contain all of the teachings of Christ. It does not contain all truth. And that it is only a short abridgment of a much larger record given to us to first try our faith and if we would not treat lightly this record then we might receive more well we have not received more so that tells us something some have also elevated the book of mormon above the bible to the point of suggesting that the bible isn't really all that important and that if we would just stick with the book of mormon it would give us all that we need but i think it should be pointed out that while this record gives you all you need to come unto christ so does the bible and that the book of mormon is supplemental to the bible not vice versa For those who would diminish in any way the importance of the Bible, uh, I must ask this simple question. Why it was that days after departing from Jerusalem, Lehi was instructed by the Lord to send his sons on a dangerous mission to go back and get the brass plates. The man who had the brass plates in his possession robbed them of their treasure and tried to murder them. Nephi later had a vision regarding the Bible itself. Listen to what the angel tells him regarding this vision he has of the Bible. And he said unto me, The book that thou beholdest is the record of the Jews, which contains the covenants of the Lord which he hath made to the house of Israel. And it also containeth many of the prophecies of the holy prophets. And it is a record like unto the engravings which are upon the plates of brass save there are not so many nevertheless they contain the covenants of the lord which he hath made unto the house of israel wherefore they are of great worth unto the gentiles so you see the brass plates themselves are essentially the same record as the bible except the bible is missing maybe a few things If it was vital for the Nephites to have it, and also of great worth to the Gentiles, it is likewise vital for us to have it. And not only to have it, but to study it, and to know it, and to gain understanding from it. Notice what the angel says regarding the Bible itself. He said that it contains the covenants of the Lord which he hath made unto the house of Israel, Wherefore, they are of great worth to the Gentiles. Interesting, isn't it? That because the Bible contains the covenants of God made to Israel, it should be of great worth to the Gentiles? Have you ever stopped to ask yourself why? Well, as we go through what the prophets have to say about Israel, it should become more clear to us. What I wanted to do was take time to go through the recent video I uploaded called Sacred Promise, which takes a high-level walk through the covenants made to Israel. I'd like to go through it with you and discuss what the prophets have to say about it. And no doubt some will wonder why this is so important to me or why we need to discuss it, and such questions are valid and should be asked. And to that, I would respond, why not ask the prophets why it was so important to them to share these things and to have them recorded for our benefit? And I'm guessing if we could ask them that question, that maybe their answer might be, why not ask God why he thinks it's so important? After all, he is the one who commanded them to prophesy and write these things. What I want to share today isn't just some pet theory of mine. It's the very words of the prophets, all of whom are in agreement about what has been unfolding and what is about to happen. Aside from the prophecies of the coming of Christ, the fulfillment of God's covenants with Israel is the most prophesied event in all of scripture. I have come to understand these things by way of the Holy Spirit, and this same understanding has been given to others as a separate witness, holy and distinct from my own. This understanding is also how God set me free from a cult, and also how he freed me from the delusion the one true church organization to the exclusion of everyone else. It revealed that many of our religious notions, religious notions that I grew up with are small-minded, that God's plans are so much bigger than that. Much of what I'm going to share is also supported by many biblical scholars even though the fullness of understanding regarding this mystery is not yet complete. Even those facts the scholars completely agree upon are not generally discussed or understood or embraced in the Christian denominations. It simply is not taught because it doesn't align with many of their preconceived notions, and it doesn't align with false doctrines such as the rapture. This mystery appears to be hidden from the world, but it is also a mystery that is hidden in plain sight. Okay, let's get into the video and discuss it. All right, we're gonna start with God's covenant with Abraham here. This is a passage many of you will find familiar in Genesis 12. This is uh, something most people don't really pay attention to. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. Um, These are some tremendous blessings that are here. Uh, Abraham's seed will be a blessing to the whole world. Um, I guess the question I have for you is, do we recognize that and have we understood that and how that is? Um, Also, that this is a promise that Abraham's seed would possess the gates of their enemy. To do that is to have full military dominion over them, essentially. Uh, I would say the gates of the enemies in today's world are the many straits and waterways in which major trade goes through. Um, Right now there is a contention in the Middle East over a strait in which uh, Yemen has uh, had terrorists and pirates on the sea trying to disrupt trade there. And because of that, we've uh, sent drones and bomb different military sites in Yemen. And of course, Iran is involved with this. And this is all part of the greater conflict in the Middle East. Now, one of the things I'd like to see us recognize um, as we're looking at this is that these blessings that will come along to each generation are accumulative. They are very repetitive in one sense. They repeat the blessings of their fathers upon the children, but then additional blessings will be added and these seem to accumulate and grow as it goes. So pay attention to that as we're going through here. May people serve you. This is a new addition, isn't it? And nations bow down to you. Now, as we're looking at these things, I, I want you to think about how this is going to be fulfilled in the last days. How is it fulfilled? How has it been fulfilled throughout time? And when have we seen this? And so Abundance of grain and new wine, a fatness of the earth, these blessings, the dew of heaven. But also now, may people serve you and nations bow down to you. Have we seen this happen? Is it yet to happen? Is it a combination of both? So this is a huge promise right here a company of nations shall come from you not just one nation not just a nation of israel but a company of nations now how will that become fulfilled we know that god's word does not return void to him and so everything that's been spoken here will and shall or has come to pass and so israel keep that in mind jacob who is now named israel a new name a company of nations shall come from you This is one that you've heard many times probably especially as a restorationist as a mormon Uh, joseph is a fruitful bough a fruitful bough by a spring its branches run over a wall now you've come to understand through the book of mormon that one of the ways in which this is uh achieved or fulfilled in prophecy is that joseph's seed would run over the the wall or the barrier of the sea into a new land a new promised land and so this is the beginning of his blessing to him. Let's continue on here. Now let's take a look at this. Um, there's a, I think this is just kind of, Words that is easy to gloss over when you're reading and not really think about it. Let's take a look here. From the God of your father, who helps you. From from the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. And by the Almighty, who blesses you with blessings of heaven above. Okay, so heavenly blessings, spiritual riches. But also blessings of the deep that lie beneath. I mean, now we're talking about the wealth of the earth. Diamonds, gold, you know, iron, gems. Okay, we're talking about the wealth of the earth. Wealth from heaven, uh, spiritual things, and wealth of the earth. So this is a blessing to Joseph. And this is certainly a new blessing, right, that uh, we have not seen before. And also blessings of the breast and of the womb. I can only assume that that is basically speaking of blessings of many children being born, a wealth of generations. That the blessings of your father have surpassed the blessings of my ancestors. So these blessings are getting greater. They're even greater than the original blessing given to Abraham up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Uh, that's quite a statement that's some very poetic uh language and may they be on the head of joseph so put all these blessings on him and on the crown of the head of the one who is distinguished among his brothers which was joseph he was distinguished he was set aside he was israel's favorite and he was the son who was basically Uh, became a model, a type, and a shadow for Christ himself in that he was sacrificed. He was seen as dead, and yet his father then later found that he was indeed alive. And he was the salvation of Israel at that time because of the seven-year famine, because his family were going to die, and yet Joseph lived, and he was to the right hand of Pharaoh. And because of Joseph... Because he was basically sacrificed or attempted to be done away with by his brothers, uh, Joseph was put in a position to save his entire family, to bring them into a place of refuge, into a place of safety, and to be able to feed and nourish and let them grow. And this whole story of Joseph in Egypt and all of Israel being saved is a type and shadow of Zion in the last days of the new Jerusalem. And so this story these scriptures are full of symbolism and metaphor for the last days even as noah and the ark is as well okay let's continue on here okay now we're coming to Moses' blessing of joseph now uh this is probably one that a lot of people never really paid attention to did moses bless joseph i mean Joseph had passed on by the time Moses came along. And yet Moses had a blessing to confer, a blessing that was spoken upon Joseph and his seed. And so we want to read this. It is important. So blessed of the Lord be his land. So whatever land Joseph would end up with, okay, with the choice things of heaven, with the dew. Here's some of that familiar language we've seen before. And from the deep lying beneath, and from the deep lying beneath, and I think this is referring to the riches of the earth, and with the choice yield of the sun. So we're talking about food and in crops and in growing things. And with the choice produce of the months, again. So a wealth of food, a wealth of harvest, a wealth of growing of crops. And he goes on to say, "...and with the best things of the ancient mountains, and with the choice things of the everlasting hills, and with the choice things of the earth and its fullness, and the favor of him who dwelt in the bush." Who's that? God was as a fire in a bush, you know, that Moses saw. And here Moses is saying, "...and may the favor be on Joseph of him who dwelt in the bush." So may the favor of God be upon Joseph. Let it come to the head of Joseph and to the crown of the head of the one distinguished among his brothers. Oh, very familiar language. we just seen that a little bit earlier as Joseph being distinguished from his brothers. Now, is this only speaking of Joseph? And here we are talking about uh, a time when Joseph has passed on from this earth is it possible that not only are we speaking of joseph here but we're speaking of joseph's descendants that even his descendants would be distinguished from among his brothers something to ponder something to contemplate as we continue on here with these blessings that are amassing and accumulating over time okay This may be an important one. In fact, I know it is, and I want to stop here and just pause for a moment. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. Um, Something I want to mention here is that an ox is a symbol of Ephraim. Just keep that in mind as we go along here. As the firstborn of his ox, majesty is his. And his horns are the horns of the wild ox with them he will push the peoples all at once to the ends of the earth okay have you really ever contemplated this blessing right here have you ever contemplated what that means that joseph pushed with those horns the peoples of the earth and then it says an interesting statement this is prophetic language and so here we see we're not just talking about joseph we're actually talking about joseph's descendants Specifically, we're talking about Ephraim, Manasseh. And those are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and those are the thousands of Manasseh. So what this is saying in prophetic language is that Ephraim will be much larger in scope than the number of people, than the number of descendants will be a lot larger than Manasseh. Uh, again, this is not exact figures. I think it's prophetic language, but I believe it was uttered by the Spirit. The ten thousands of Ephraim, the thousands of Manasseh. Keep that in mind. Okay, let's continue on. Okay, now your two sons, speaking of Ephraim and Manasseh who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. This is Israel, Jacob now named Israel, and he is pronouncing a blessing upon Joseph, his sons, sons. So his grandsons. And he is saying that Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine. What does he mean by that? So Ephraim and Manasseh belong to Israel. That's important. Let's continue on here. And Israel stretched out his right hand and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, okay? And his left hand on Manasseh's head. So he had crossed his hands, right? And he did this even though Manasseh was the firstborn. So the right hand should have been on Manasseh. But there's a little switcheroo, just like there seems to happen over and over again in the scriptures, where God chooses according to his own will and desire, rather than what our traditions are as people. That's important right there. Bless the lads and may my name, what name is that? The name of Israel will live on in them. Specifically, Israel does not give this blessing to any of his other children or grandchildren. It is not recorded anywhere else except for Ephraim and Manasseh. May my name, the name of Israel, live on in them. And the names of my fathers too, Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Okay. Now here we come to it. Joseph sees that his father has switched his hands. Okay. And that he has laid his right hand on Ephraim's head. And so Joseph is saying to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Manasseh is my firstborn. What are you doing? You know, what are you doing, pops? So let's continue here. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know he also will become a people and he also will be great. So great and tremendous blessings will be upon Manasseh all right even as the nephites there would be a great blessing for them however his younger brother ephraim shall be greater than he okay and his descendants shall be a multitude of nations remember we had that similar blessing upon jacob and here we see that ephraim Uh, will be greater than manasseh and he won't be just one nation but he's going to get that blessing that was placed upon jacob that he his descendants will be a multitude of nations so let me ask you this question when we're looking at the earth today and we're looking around and we're looking at these prophecies and we're looking at the earth today where is ephraim no one knows No one talks about him. And yet, we are promised that his blessing will be even greater, that he will be even greater as a people than Manasseh. Okay? And not only that, but there will be a multitude of nations. I mean, a multitude of nations in the earth. Okay? That's tremendous. How is it that we can come to a point in our studies as people in the Bible and in the Book of Mormon and whatever else, and be looking around and just ignore as if Ephraim no longer exists, uh, as if he was taken out. Maybe God changed his mind. Now Let me ask you a question. Does his word return to him void? Or are all these promises assured? We're going to find out that the prophets speak an awful lot about Ephraim you will find Ephraim spoken of. You do a word search, you're going to find him all through the prophets talked about. And what should be more startling is that it's after they disappeared and we've become a lost tribe and an unknown. And yet the Lord continues to speak about Ephraim in great terms. Well, also about their great sin, but how he's going to fix that. So we'll come back to that. But again just uh, ponder that you know where is Ephraim that he would might be a multitude of nations he blessed them that day saying by you Israel will pronounce a blessing this is again really profound by you Israel uh, the nation of Israel will pronounce a blessing in future days and those blessings will be may god make you like ephraim and manasseh that's a blessing so imagine you get ready to leave your friend's house you had a nice visit and you say may god make you like ephraim and manasseh well that's that's something else isn't it okay let's continue on all right we're going to come to a very important of history called the Divided Kingdom Uh, again Christianity or Christian denominations mostly completely ignore this history why because they don't know what to do with it if you talk about the Divided Kingdom you will raise questions which they do not have answers for but here's the history of the divided Kingdom from 922 to 721 BC The divided kingdom began with Solomon's death. While the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remained loyal to the memory of King David, the northern ten tribes collectively called Israel. Now, why would they have been called Israel? If you remember, Israel blessed Ephraim and Manasseh and said, my name will be upon you. So when the prophet of the Lord came to Jeroboam, who was an Ephraimite, who was pleading on behalf of the northern tribes against the heavy forced labor and the heavy taxation on the northern tribes that Solomon had put upon them. And Solomon's son basically refused them, refused to make things better for them. In fact, he made it harder on them. It's almost exactly what happened with the American English colonies. They also asked for some relief for the heavy taxation. And what the king did was basically saying, well, no, I'm going to make it even harder on you. They gave them no reprieve. And they had a tax revolt. Exactly like the American Revolution, in a sense. And so the nation became divided. It became two separate nations. Okay, the northern ten tribes were collectively called israel and they revolted from following solomon's son rehoboam all the major prophets isaiah ezekiel jeremiah hosea amos all the ones that you commonly think of as the prophets the major prophets of the old testament they prophesied after the kingdom split and became divided and so when they prophesied They knew who they were prophesying to. Sometimes they prophesied to the northern kingdom and called them to repentance. And sometimes they prophesied to the southern kingdom. And they always referred to the southern kingdom as Judah or Jerusalem. And the northern kingdom they always referred to as Israel, or in some cases, Jacob or Ephraim. But it was the name Israel that was most commonly used used to refer to the Northern Kingdom. As we can see in this Bible map that is right here on the screen. If you got a Bible that has maps in it and shows you uh, different periods of time, you will find this map and you can go online and just type the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. And you can read article after article after article about it and you can see maps and see what happened with that history. Okay, so we need to keep this in mind. Uh, This is important, and I'll get to that in just a moment. And I saw that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce so israel was supposed to be like a wife to the lord right and he has written a bill of divorcement that's pretty harsh Um, basically if you go and read this what he says is uh, you will no longer be as my people i won't be your god you won't be my people you will become as the heathen as the pagan I will, and literally he tells them that he will spread them out and scatter them into all the Gentile nations that they will become as Gentiles and they won't even know him. But God does make some promises about a future day, but let's continue with this. Here we read that the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam. He did. Jeroboam was that Ephraimite leader who had led them in the revolt against the southern kingdom. But Jeroboam, as good a man as he may have been at one time, probably it's the old adage that you know power corrupts. But Jeroboam began to be corrupted, probably in his power, but also in his jealousy, because well, they had one problem, and that is that at one point, and I need to explain this, in the northern territories, in the allotment of land that was set aside for Ephraim by Joshua, who, again, was an Ephraimite, was the place of Shiloh in the mountains, okay? And the tabernacle of the Lord that had come with them through the wilderness was placed in Shiloh by decree of the Lord, not in Jerusalem, but then because of disobedience, the Ark of the Covenant was lost. And then it was David who recovered the Ark of the Covenant and brought it back to Jerusalem. And that is why the temple was built in Jerusalem. And so you'll see the Ephraimites lost that great privilege of having the Ark of the Covenant and the Tabernacle of God And the sacrifices all that was done in the northern territories nobody talks about that you never hear about that in the bible stories it wasn't until king david that the tabernacle and then the temple but before that it was with ephraim and so jeroboam had a big problem on his hands because he resented the south he resented the southern kingdom uh, and yet the temple was there in jerusalem and so all of the northern tribes would have to travel down to jerusalem for their spiritual activities with the temple and he didn't like that and so what was his solution it was a terrible one Uh, he put some golden calves up and had the people go there instead in the northern territories yeah he got into idolatry and so as we read here in second kings in chapter 17, the sons of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam, which he did, and they did not depart from them, even though the prophets prophesied against it and said, you're going to suffer a calamity if you don't repent. And it says they did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel from his sight as he spoke through all of his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away into exile from their own land to Assyria, unto this day okay something to know about assyria that i did in my research is that when they conquer a people they did something that no other nation did if you got carried away by them you didn't just get carried into assyria uh, because you might one day revolt and rise up and come together and rebel right in the midst of their own country and so to make sure you would never ever rise up again They took you, and they scattered you, and they put you in all different places, far-flung places, not just in Assyria. But they would take you to other countries where they had conquered and spread you out in there. And so, basically, Israel and the Northern Ten Tribes didn't just go to Assyria, even though that's just how it's phrased, you know, carried away to Assyria or carried away by Assyria. But what really happened to them is they were being scattered into all the nations that Assyria had taken over, which is pretty big, all these lands to the north. And so that is why we talk about them coming back from the north where they were scattered. Okay, so I just wanted to share all that. And that's what happened. So God wrote them a bill of divorcement, and then he scattered them, caused them to be carried away by Assyria. Let's continue on here. From Ezekiel thirty-six seventeen it says, Therefore I poured out my wrath on them for the blood which they had shed on the land, because they had defiled it with their idols. Also, I scattered them among the nations. I underline that part because that's key. This is going to be something that is stated again and again among the prophets about the northern tribes, that God has scattered them among the nations and in fact we're going to read later that it says all the nations and they were dispersed throughout the lands it says according to their ways and their deeds I judged them and the kingdom of Israel became known as the ten lost tribes of Israel even to this day no one knows where they are you know this has caused some to uh, speculate uh, on the idea that the northern tribes somehow went into uh into the hollow of the earth and that they are a civilization that is up in the north pole somewhere underground or something i know there was a book by edward butterworth that talked about this idea and my grandparents were reading about that and wondering about it themselves And this is because of all the prophetic language. Prophetic language is very symbolic. It uses a lot of metaphors. And so what it talks about the lost tribes or Israel will come again from the north country. Well, that's a prophetic language. It's a symbolic language. It's when you say they're coming again from or returning from the north country, it's not that they're necessarily straight north of wherever. It's symbolic of the fact that they were carried off to the north and disappeared. And they will return again is what it's trying to say. So when we're looking around the earth and we don't see the lost tribes anywhere, where are they? Well, they're going to come out of the north. Well, then you get these crazy ideas, you know, like that the tribes of Israel are, you know, in the hollow of the earth or something. All right. So another question is. Did God make null and void his promises? The promises that he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And then from Jacob, the promises, the tremendous promises that he made to Ephraim and Manasseh. Okay. Were those null and void? Are they no longer in existence? Is the question I ask. You know did god forget israel what do you think and this is interesting because we need to understand that he wasn't done with them that even though they were gone and could no longer receive any rebuke or call for repentance from the prophets. They were unable to receive the word of the Lord from the prophets. And yet, if you look in your scriptures, if you look at the prophets, after the time of the Northern tribes being carried away, they will continue to speak to Israel, to Ephraim, and they will do a lot of talking about them. A lot of talking. And so obviously God was not done with them. So let's take a look at some of the things that God says after they were gone and became lost. Listen to me, O islands, and pay attention, you people from afar. So he's speaking here to Israel. If you look in the context of it, he's going to speak to Israel. He's going to speak to the lost tribes of Israel. And he's also saying, listen to me, O islands. And as we go along here, you'll see that the Lord also speaks about them being scattered not only among every nation but even unto the isles of the sea and in fact that language from isaiah is quoted in the book of mormon and the nephites determined that hey the people in the isles of the sea that must be them i mean they went on a boat and the isle of the sea is can be a language that could describe them it's as if they are on an island of the sea okay and then here in isaiah 49 the lord has forsaken me and the lord has forgotten me this is the cry of israel in their gentile nations where they have been scattered in assyria the lord has forsaken me he's forgotten me he's given up on me those promises that we had are null and void now because of my sin i've been in that position have you ever felt that way but look what God says. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? He says, even these may forget, but I will not forget you. And from Amos, the Lord says, For behold, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, So I'm going to ask you, where is the lost tribes of Israel today? If they never returned home, if the northern tribes never came back, where are they today? People wonder, where are they? Where could they be? People speculate. But here in the prophets, they say where they are. I will sift the house of Israel among all nations. So guess what? They're spread out in all the nations. But he compares them as grain that is shaken, or in other words, sifted in a sieve. And he says, not a kernel will fall on the ground. So they may be lost, interspersed, lost their identity, don't know who they are. They're a mix of Gentile and Israelite blood. Maybe they've only got 20% Israelite blood. Maybe it's 10%. I don't know. But it says here, God is not going to lose a single one of them. He still knows who they are, even if they don't. And he is going to restore them. That is the beauty of these covenants. That in spite of the fact that we don't even deserve it, he's coming for us, that he loves us. All right, let's continue. And in Hosea, it says, Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Okay, this is... Speaking of, even as they are interspersed among all the Gentile nations, at this point, they've already been dispersed. They're already scattered and considered lost. And yet, see what he says. Yet the number of the sons of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. Remember, that's pretty much the blessing that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob received, that even their numbers would be even as the sands of the sea. And it says, which cannot be measured or even numbered. So it's not a small amount of people and it's not some small group hiding out in some hollow cave in the earth but we're talking about massive numbers of people like the sand of the sea now that's a that's a lot okay and in the place where it is said to them you are not my people now i want you to think about this and in the place wherever they are where it is said to them you are not my people so I hear today and it is the opinion of some that uh the people that have been gathered here to this place to the United States of America are Gentiles that they are not Israel in any way shape or form and that determination is made because they're called Gentiles in the Book of Mormon and yet we're going to get to that okay because they are Gentiles until something happens And that's a decision and a determination each of us gets to make. But it says here, and in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people. You're not Israel. You are not Israel. You're a Gentile. It will be said to them, you are the sons of the living God. This is speaking to the sons of Israel. Has this already taken place? Is it happening even now? that the sons of Israel, dispersed among all the Gentile nations, might be gathered. And yet, they're not spiritually gathered yet, not fully. They don't understand who they are, they're not restored, okay? But it's said to them, you're not my people, you're not Israelites. Yet, it will be said, you're the sons of the living God. And every Christian should really has a true relationship with the living God, should be able to lay hold of this promise here that you are the sons of the living God. And in the context of that, we go on here, and it says, shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no child. Now Israel is lost, and so she can have no children. And it says here, they'll break forth into joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed, For the sons of the desolate one, the desolate one is a reference to Israel. She is desolate. She got a bill of divorcement and she's been cast off. But it says of the desolate one that they will be more numerous, their children will be more numerous than the sons of the married woman. The married woman is Judah. She never got the writing of divorcement. And this is what the Lord has said. So what we can take from this is that the sons of Israel will be numerous, even more numerous than Judah or the Jews. Well, and if we look at what was said to them just previous to this, it says that their numbers, even though they've been scattered, will continue to grow and be numberless, even as the sands of the sea. Okay, and in context of that, it will continue on with the following. The instruction here being to enlarge the place of your tent, to stretch out the curtains of your dwellings and spare not, lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. This is a scripture that we have long known is in regards to Zion and the restoration of the house of Israel. And that this woman is barren and yet suddenly she has these children and she says, who are these children? How did they come to me? Well, how does Israel suddenly get new children that are numberless as the sands of the sea? Well, we'll get there, but let me just put this out there as something to consider. What if God restores Israel from among the Gentile nations, awakens them and causes them to realize who they are and what their inheritance in Israel is, all those who repent And those who do not repent remain Gentiles. And how many could there be then that could come back to the Lord and be counted as Israel? And would we have to enlarge the space in Zion, enlarge the tent, you know, stretch out the curtains? We got lots of people to get in here, okay? lengthen the cords, strengthen your pegs. Fear not, for you will not be put to shame. This is important, but you will forget the shame of your youth. Oh, God had written them a bill of divorcement, but now he's saying, fear not. I will not put you to shame, but you will forget the shame of your youth. You'll forget the shame of the sins that you once committed and the reproach of the widowhood you will remember no more for your husband is your maker. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. What a tremendous promise. It says, for a brief moment, I forsook you, but with great compassion, I will gather you. So there's a gathering coming. And Paul speaks about I don't want you, brethren, to be uneducated about this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. He's speaking to the Gentiles here. You know, don't be wise. Don't be cocky because, uh, yes, there's been a hardening. uh, Israel has sinned and fallen away. And yet that is only until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Well, doesn't the Book of Mormon talk about that? It talks about the Gentiles and how they will scatter Manasseh, the seed of Lehi. But then there'll be the fullness of the Gentiles that comes in. Then the time of the Gentiles is over. And what's to say here? And so all Israel will be saved. All of it. Not just the Jews, but all of it. The northern tribes included, wherever they have gone and wherever God has gathered them. We'll talk about that in just a moment. The prophets will speak of it. So, just as it is written, he says, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. What a promise. This is my covenant with them. When I take away their sins. He's gonna take sin from Jacob, from Israel from the northern tribes. And now Isaiah 1111, 11. this has been something the Spirit has pressed upon me for the last few years now. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again a second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from Assyria and Egypt and Pathros and Cush and Elam and Shinar and Hamath and the islands of the sea everywhere okay so when was the first time this is an interesting scripture that hard for most christians to be able to understand because when did he set his hand to recover them the first time well historically speaking they never have they've been gone They're called the lost tribes. still are to this day nobody knows where they are right so when was the first time I believe the first time is when the Book of Mormon came forth. The Book of Mormon was to herald the time of the gathering of Israel. In fact, that was the whole purpose of the, what we call the restoration. Now the restoration really was a term that came about, not in regards to the church or the priesthood. That's what it became later, but what it was originally meant to be according to the message of the angel to joseph was about the restoration of the house of israel we're going to talk about that and that's what oliver Cowdery also wrote in his writings and his remembrances is that that was the whole purpose of all of this but the church fell into sin and it did not do what it was supposed to do it got caught up in trying to build the one true denomination and cared more about winning over the souls of white men than they did their native american brothers and so when is the first time i think that was when he first set his hand he actually brought forth a book that's supposed to help with that and will and yet that whole thing got put on pause for a while let's continue here with isaiah 11. okay it says here he will set up a banner or an ensign, depending on what version of the Bible you're reading. He'll set up a banner or an ensign for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel. That ensign for the nations is Zion. And he will assemble the outcasts of Israel. Why are they the outcasts? Notice it says dispersed of Judah. Well, Judah did become dispersed. Uh, And they've now been gathered to their own land in Judea. But Israel is called outcast. Well, it's because they got a writing of divorcement and were scattered and outcast. They were cast off from the Lord. Okay, but he will assemble the outcasts of Israel. That's one gathering. And he will gather together the dispersed of Judah. That's a second gathering from the four corners of the earth. Now, there's a scripture you may be familiar with that says that the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. This is said a number of times, and Jesus said it. So I'm going to ask you a question here. Who was the first to be scattered? The answer is Israel in the north. And so, if they are the first to be scattered, they will be the last to be gathered. And Judah was the last to be scattered or dispersed and they were the first to be gathered the first shall be last the last shall be first you don't have to go with that i'm just sharing you what i believe i understand about this go to the lord and read these scriptures for yourself go through the prophets with new eyes if you've never done it before with the new eyes that they are prophesying separately to israel and to judah and read it with new eyes because israel somewhere where are they and it says here also the envy of ephraim shall depart now here we see israel and ephraim are the same because we're right back at it we're still going to use judah for the name of the jews here but we're going to now talk about ephraim the envy of ephraim shall depart are there people envious of ephraim look around maybe they just don't know that they're ephraim is there an envy of any nation or people at this time is there a nation that is has the riches of the earth and the riches of heaven that is blessed and it says here and the adversaries of judah shall be cut off does judah have some adversaries they sure do i've got a lot i mean they're surrounded by enemies right now but this is interesting Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. What does that mean? I thought about this a lot. And, uh, you know, Ephraim, they did envy Judah for quite a while, just before they fell into sin and were cast off. And that was that because the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, went to Jerusalem. Okay? They... And now, uh, if we are Gentiles, and they're the chosen people, is there possibly any envy there? Think about that. Pray about it. Uh, How might this passage be realized today? That Ephraim will not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Um, You know, I was given something a while back, I was going to do a video on this, and I might still on some level here. But the uh, the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son, in many ways, I think Jesus was trying to teach them something of value regarding the northern tribes that had been carried off. Uh, they were considered unclean. Even the remnant that did come back, uh, the ones that uh, were called Samaritans, they were Gentiles with the blood of Ephraim. And so, because they were mixed with the Gentiles and their children were mixed, uh, they were considered just Gentiles. And they were unclean, and you wanted to avoid them at all cost. In the mind of the Jew, the Samaritans were no longer God's chosen people. They were unclean and they were not true Israelites. But how does God see it? Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Well, what was the problem that Judah had legalism that was the problem and so perhaps what we're saying here is judah will not harass ephraim with their legalism or with their righteousness or self-righteousness or whatever they were the good son after all who did they kept the laws they kept the commandments you know and so they looked down at ephraim and i think perhaps that is some of what is being written into this narrative here um It's something to pray about and look into. Okay. This is one that's new to me Uh, just recently that I read and considered in Ezekiel. It does say here, the Lord says, I have a concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel, we're talking about the northern tribes, had profaned among the nations where they went. Therefore... Say to the house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name. And yet, what a blessing that's going to come about because of this for them. It says, for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst see what happens next okay it says here that then the nations will know that i am the lord declares the lord god listen to this when i prove myself holy among you in their sight for i will take you from the nations out of all these nations we've been driven to and he's going to gather you from all the lands and bring you to your own land. This is a language that is used numerous times in regards to Israel and they're being gathered again. It always says it in a very unique way, saying, I will bring you to your own land. Well, where is that land going to be? Uh, has it changed from where it originally was in the Bible? Is this a new thing the Lord is going to do? Because he seems to be indicating something new and interesting. And we have here on a new land discovered, everything has the word new in front of it. There was York back in Europe, and then there's New York. And we find the word new in front of a lot of things. New Hampshire, for example they're just the names of cities that are taken from europe and then they put the word new in front of it you'll find it all over the map and we have in the scriptures something called the new jerusalem and in the book of mormon it talks about well it can't be the jerusalem of old because it is a new jerusalem so it's something separate you know i find it interesting if you look at a map of the world the world, the continents, are basically divided into two masses, east and west. And is God going to do something these last days where there will be an ensign or a place of gathering of his people and that one will be in one land mass and one on another, that he has arranged that according to his purposes? I'd like to do more on this and go deeper. We can go so much deeper on this, but... I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but there are scriptures that indicate this and the Book of Mormon definitely indicates this, but even in the Bible, there are hints of this. Okay, so let's get back to this, for I will take you from the nations, the nations where they were driven away, and he's going to gather them to their own land, and then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you of all your filthiness and all your idols now i want you to take a look here there's an order to these events he says here that he'll take them from the nations and gather them to their own land that's first thing that happens and then it says i will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean and i will cleanse you from all your filthiness your sins and from your idols that's the second thing that happens so we are first gathered physically and then we will be gathered spiritually first we are brought to the place where god is going to restore us and then he restores us this is the pattern that i've seen over and over as i'm looking at the prophets and uh, i don't want to force that view on anybody but if you take a look at those and and see what you see for yourself and Feel free to share what you find down in the comments below. Okay. All right, now we go to Hosea. And in Hosea, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. He's speaking here to israel and if you turn to your bibles and open them up at least in most of the bibles that i have when you open up to this chapter it says right at the top of the chapter that this is a chapter about the restoration of israel and during hosea's time israel had been carried away captive and had disappeared and they were gone and so hosea is now prophesying that He's going to restore her again. And you can read that whole chapter for yourself. So if you read that scripture, you'll find that Israel pays uh, a penalty. They go through some hard times and uh, because of their sin. But I want to highlight here his promise to restore them and how he's going to do that. And one of the things he says is that he is going to lure her into the wilderness. He's going to lure her and, and bring her into the wilderness to speak kindly to her. And I believe we're seeing the fulfillment of that right now, right now, as we're, as we're exiting and leaving our churches, our denominations, as we're finding organized religion, less and less appealing and no longer satisfying the need of the soul. As we come out of her, come out of that church, come out of these churches of men come out of the idolatry of the worship of men and under false doctrines come out from all of that. And we come to Christ. That is what he's doing. He's luring us out into the wilderness to speak kindly to us. And in this wilderness, you know, Hosea is saying that the Lord will give her her vineyards from there. vineyard. That is an important symbolic language and the door of hope, and she will sing there as in the days of her youth. So before we got a writing of divorcement, before things went south, before we got kicked out of the household of God, as even in the day when we came out of the land of Egypt. So a great celebration, the land of Egypt coming out of that, it's talking about deliverance. It's talking about God delivering us from our bondage. We need to come out of the bondage of bad religion. Come out of the bondage of these churches and come out of the bondage of Babylon. We need to come unto the Lord and be nourished by him in the wilderness. This is a scripture that should be familiar to many people. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant of his people who will be left. Just as there was for Israel in the day that they came out of the land of Egypt notice that this highway comes up out of assyria again assyria is really just symbolic of those places wherever they have been scattered and you'll see that in the next verse here as we continue and then in jeremiah this is important 16 it says therefore behold days are coming declares the lord days are coming this is a future event In fact, I believe that we're on the precipice of it right now because this was not done yet. It hasn't taken place. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when it will no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But instead, as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north, and from all the countries where he had banished them, for I will restore them to their own land. He will bring us back from the lands of the north, back from Assyria, back from all of the countries where he had banished us from, for I will restore them to their own land. And Isaiah 41, it says, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. The Lord hasn't forgotten us. The Lord hasn't forgotten Jacob or Israel, but he says, you are my servant. I haven't forgotten you. I chose you in the beginning and I will choose you again. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I don't care what happens in the days to come. I don't care if the banks fail. I don't care if there's riots in the streets. If you're a child of God, look up, for the time is near. Do not anxiously look about. Don't look at everything that's going on in the world. Don't look about you anxiously, for I am your God, he says. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. What does he say? Again, surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. What a promise. It's a promise that we can hold to. All right, and then the video finishes up with this quote from isaiah 52 the kings shall shut their mouths for what had not been told them they shall see and what they had not heard they shall consider this goes to the point of it being a mystery something that is hid from them but when god does it and the book of mormon makes us very clear this is the work of a father and that he will do it that he will do it himself so that we will know that he is god And so when he does this, the nations, the kings of the earth, must awaken and see, surely there is a God. And he is the God of Israel. And look what he has done. A people who were destroyed, scattered, become of no people for thousands of years. And now they are restored. Israel is restored. It's a promise. It's going to happen. You can have your opinions about how that happens. But Israel the northern tribes will be restored in the flesh again. And where are they? What do the scriptures say? We've been reading it all through this video. And you can go read the prophets and read dozens more passages that will tell you that they are scattered among all the Gentile nations, that they became as the heathens, they became as Gentiles. They lost a memory of who they even are. And this, according to the promise of God, that this would happen to them. Even as the Lamanites, even as the seed of Lehi, don't even know who they are any longer. But what has God promised? A restoration to the whole house of Israel. One day, the seed of Lehi will awaken, and they will know who they are in the Lord. You can debate who it is, but it has to be Gentiles. It has to be people who were formerly known as Gentiles who were among all the Gentile nations that are going to be gathered and then God will restore them. There's no arguing with what the prophets say that Ephraim will once more exist, that Manasseh will exist, that all of the northern tribes, the tribes that have gone missing, they will exist once more. The world will know them for who they are. All right, and I'd like to read from Ezekiel 20. Now keep in mind that Ezekiel is prophesying long after the northern tribes have been carried off by Assyria and scattered and lost. But Ezekiel will prophesy not only of the return of Judah from captivity in Babylon, but he will also prophesy of the eventual return of the house of Israel in the last days. So I'd like to read verses 32 through 35 to you. This is something that was not in the video that we had just watched. And it says, And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel, that which cometh into your mind shall not be at all, that you say, We will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. Well, for a time, that's basically what had happened to them. But Ezekiel here is prophesying that whether they inquire of the Lord or are seeking him or not, he has them in his mind. And he's going to help bring about a series of events where they can come back to him, where they will serve him. But he says, no, you're not going to be like the heathen forever. As I live, saith the Lord God, surely with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, I will bring you out from the people. I will gather you out from the countries wherein you are scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm and with fury poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the people. And there will I plead with you, face to face. What a beautiful promise. He has promised again and again that he has not forgotten Israel. He has not forgotten those ten tribes. Never at any time. And yes, he forsook them for a short moment in wrath, as it says. But with great tenderness he will gather them back. And here is yet just another promise of that. And so this is something that has not yet happened. The world has not seen. It It has not taken place. And so it must yet take place. The Book of Mormon also speaks of this, that the house of Israel, that those lost tribes, that they will be gathered to their own land. And it says that they will be gathered to the New Jerusalem which is something that the seed of Lehi will be a very active part in building. And if the Gentiles will repent, they will be numbered among the house of Israel. You know, we know that the blessings of Abraham and Isaac are passed down through their lineage. But what I'd like to do is narrow it down to the blessings of the promises given to Jacob and then to Joseph and then from there to Ephraim, so that we can look about in the earth, since this has not yet happened, since that restoration has not taken place, to look about on the earth and ask the question, who could this be? You know, where can we find these people? So let's start in Genesis 27, uh, verses 28 and 29. This is Isaac's blessing to Jacob. It says that they will have a great abundance, riches basically of the earth, and that people will serve them and nations will bow down to them. Nations will bow to them. Those who curse them will be cursed and those who bless them will be blessed. And in Genesis 35, 10 through 12, God blesses Jacob directly himself. And what is interesting in contrast to Jacob's blessing here is that Abraham was told that he would make of him a great nation. But when God goes to bless Jacob, he tells Jacob, A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and that kings shall come from you. And then in Genesis 49, 22-26, Jacob blesses Joseph and he tells Joseph that he would be fruitful and that he would run over the wall and that he would receive blessings from above from the heavens and from below, which is the earthly blessings. And Joseph's seed would be blessed even above his ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Well, that's quite the promise. And then in Deuteronomy 33:13 through17, Moses places his blessing upon Joseph and Joseph's seed, And it says that Joseph's land would be blessed by the Lord, with the choice things of heaven and the riches of the earth. A plentiful harvest of food is promised. So as we look about in the earth, where do we see this? joseph's land where we've heard that before well the book of mormon talks about this being joseph's land and moses also blesses saying that joseph's seed would have the best things of the mountains and the hills and he specifically says and the riches and the choice things of the earth they would have a crown and be distinguished from their brothers And he says, as an ox, his horns would push people to the ends of the earth. Now, I looked this up, and uh, in Forerunner Biblical Commentary, it says that this means that Joseph will push all the nations, and that the Hebrew definition of the verb push here is as to thrust, or to gore, or hence, or succeed, or attain, or make progress, figuratively wage war with in other words you will be triumphant you will be able to lord over you will have power over you will be successful you will be able to have power over or influence over the other nations of the earth that you'll be able to just using the english vernacular here you can push people around Uh, what nation is able to push people around and it says and those are the tens of thousands of Ephraim and the thousands of Manasseh. So it is they who will do this pushing. Now in Genesis 48, 5, Jacob's blessing on Ephraim and Manasseh goes like this, that Ephraim and Manasseh belong to Jacob. They belong to Israel. Also, the name Israel was bestowed upon them, and it was to live on in them. They would grow into a multitude in the earth and that people would envy their blessings and wish that they could have those blessings. Is there a place on the earth where people want the blessings of that particular nation, desire to come to it, to, to partake of it? You know, is that the American dream? And then finally it says that Ephraim would become a multitude of nations. So when we look at all these blessings that accumulate here and coming all the way down to Ephraim himself, where in all the world, when we look, might we see these blessings enacted? When we look at the Book of Mormon, where is the gathering of the lost tribes of Israel? According to the Book of Mormon, it is to the same land where the seed of Lehi are. And it is that land where it says that the Gentiles would build up a mighty nation that would become the most powerful nation on earth. It would be a nation that no other nation can subdue. That's what it says. And it would be also known as a land of liberty and that they would have no king. So what nation or land is that? What place have people been gathering to from out of every nation, even the Isles of the Sea for the last 200 years or more. We know that the lost tribes of Israel will be dispersed among all the nations of the earth and that they would become even as Gentiles themselves, not even knowing who they are. They would lose all memory of that, that they would become as the heathen. But it also says that God promises The time would come when they would turn to him when they would turn to christ and that when they did this the lord would begin an act of restoration he says as we read previously that he would gather them to their own land and then he says once he gathered them he would begin to cleanse them of all their idols they would become his people again well how does that happen In 3 Nephi, Jesus says, But if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, saith the Father, Behold, they shall be numbered among my people, O house of Israel. The original Hebrew meaning for the word Gentile is a heathen or the pagan. It's someone who is not an Israelite, who does not have a covenant with the God of Israel. So why would the Gentiles return to the Lord? They were never the Lord's to begin with. Unless he is calling to the lost tribes to come out of them, to come out of the people, as he says. But in another case, I think what we have to agree on is that whether by adoption or by birthright, So even if you believe that as a Gentile, you can be adopted into Israel, as Paul speaks of, or if it is a birthright within you, either way, the Gentiles who repent shall be counted as Israel. So I guess why do we want to insist on identifying as Gentiles coming come into the covenant of Abraham, the covenant of Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh and so when we repent and come unto him we become numbered as part of Israel and belonging to a church organization that is filled with pride and arrogance and error uh, does not make us a part of Israel so unfortunately many of the Saints have concluded that they were of Israel or latter-day Israel for a long time but Just saying it doesn't make you part of Israel, but instead coming into a covenant with God through Jesus Christ to be a changed creature and become like him is then to be numbered as part of Israel. As you contemplate this, I'd like to share with you an animation that I found on YouTube. I'll put the link to that animation right in the description of the video below. This visual shows the immigration of people from everywhere in the world over the last 200 years in chronological order so sit back and enjoy this and contemplate everything we've talked about up to this point where is it that god is gathering lost israel I wanted to touch briefly on the divided kingdom again and just how important how crucial it is to understand that Uh, from my patriarchal blessing um, dated april 14th 1996 Uh, that was a while ago Um, and i was just newly converted or had a conversion experience to christ i mean i was born and raised in the church but i strayed pretty far Uh, I was a prodigal son. And the Lord placed me in a situation that uh, made it very clear the choice between dark and light. And when I came to him, uh, one of the things that happened is I got my patriarchal blessing. I want to read from the second page of the blessing here. And it says that I am to continue to prepare myself for there is much to come in the days and years ahead. Where others will seek you out. This will require much time in study of the prophetic contents of the scriptures. Fasting, meditating, and prayer will be required for light. And when I got this blessing, I wondered at times whether this man had not clearly made some sort of mistake because when I read the prophets, it was unintelligible. It was gibberish to me. I could not comprehend it. And I would listen to programs or read books where people were basically explaining what the prophets are talking about, but oftentimes that did not seem right either. And I just wondered, surely I have no gift for this at all. And I did pray and I did fast and, It wasn't until the Lord brought me through a situation where I was greatly humbled and saw all the worst aspects of religion and participated in all the worst aspects of religion, even into a situation that was essentially joining a cult. And when I came out of that, the way that the Lord did it was he showed me just how small minded we were how the idea even of the one true church the exclusion of others how small that is i don't care even if you have millions of people in your church it's small minded and to join a church you don't actually have to even know the lord you don't and he began to show me a substitute something else to look at to draw my attention to and show me just how much bigger and more inclusive his picture is and how he looks at things, but also how exclusive because it's not about the right church or the right place that you're at or the family that you're in, but it is a personal intimate relationship with Christ alone. that can bring you in to what he is doing. We must respond. And as he was showing me this, he began to show me his work, of the restoration of the house of israel and my mind was blown away and one of the things he had to do was show me the nature of the history behind the divided nation israel in the north and judah in the south and it had to be explained to me and i went about reading and doing research to verify all this and turns out um, that It is the key for understanding the prophets. If you don't understand what the prophets are saying, who they're speaking to and why, you're not gonna have a clue. And so long as I'm reading Israel and I'm thinking some nation in the Middle East where the Jews are gathering, you're not gonna comprehend properly on any level what the prophets are talking about. Again, this understanding is key. And without it, you will be left spinning your wheels. And it's because of this lack of understanding that the world reads the prophecies regarding Israel and misapplies it to Judah in the Middle East. This understanding is hidden. It's God's strange act. And it's also known as the work of the Father in the Book of Mormon. And it is one of the express purposes of the Nephite record coming forth. The Book of Mormon is designed to herald this work the gathering of the lost tribes and it was oliver cowdery's testimony that in regard to the work that joseph was to do that the angel that appeared to joseph let him know that he was to remember that it was the work of the lord to fulfill certain promises made to a branch of the house of israel of the tribe of joseph and when it should be brought forth the plates which he had not yet obtained that he was to translate that it was to be done expressly with an eye single to the glory of god not the glory of joseph smith or the glory of some one true church institution but the glory of god and to the welfare and the restoration of the house of Israel. These were the words of the angel. Now I wanna share a testimony or two. In the book of Matthew chapter 15, verse 24, Jesus says something. Uh, he repeats it a couple of times. And he says, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So in other words, he didn't come for the Gentiles. He came for the lost sheep of Israel. Now, I'd mentioned before that I had joined a cult. It was in Iowa, and I was there two years. We lived primitively, uh, more primitive than the Amish, even. No electricity, no running water, uh, couldn't even use power tools. So winter times, got to go to the restroom in the middle of the night. You got to walk out to the outhouse. It could be 100 yards away in the snow and ice and freezing blowing wind and it was quite the experience but i began to realize that something wasn't right Uh, it was a very extreme exclusive idea or notion that they were the only true people on earth they were the only ones that were doing what god wanted them to do that they were the only righteous ones and this very small minded notion that this very small group of people in the middle of nowhere iowa were the exclusive people of god to the exclusion of others that began to wear on me and a great other things began to wear upon me and that was how the lord began to bring me out of that delusion and cure me of it but as i began to question more and more the leader of that cult suggested that i should go and pray and fast for four days and get an answer from the lord because I felt like I needed to minister and be ministered to by people outside of this small group and not hide away, but actually go as the Lord said into all the world and preach the gospel and not hide away in fear, waiting for the doomsday. And so I went and I fasted and, and how they fasted out there as you went far away from the village and anywhere where anyone was and everyone would know that you were fasting so everyone was supposed to stay away from you and you would be in solitude for the full four days and where they had put me was in a teepee that was in a field with a bull now i am not a fan of bulls they are very dangerous and i don't want to be in a field with a bull but that's where i ended up and so i'm in my teepee I'm fasting and I'm praying for an answer. Lord, this doesn't seem right. I I don't know. Am I wrong? Is this the place I'm supposed to be? Um, Am I supposed to leave here? What am I supposed to do? What is the right answer? What do you want me to do? What is my ministry? And on the second day of my fast, as I emerge from the teepee and look out on the field, I see the bull. And he is in the same place for two days now. Every time I look at him, he's quite a ways away down below uh, the hill that I'm on. And he's always standing in the same place. Um, Sometimes he's standing a little to the left and he's facing to the right, or he's standing a little to the right and facing to the left. But it's almost like he's going in a circle. He's never leaving that area i never see him go to the pond it was very hot it was a hot summer day and i began to wonder and eventually i walked down the hill ways to get a little closer not too close and i began to realize that the rope that was hooked to the ring on his nose was apparently wrapped in the long grasses in some way that he was trapped and So one of the ways you can control a bull, um, is they put a ring in their nose, you ever notice that a ring in the nose. And the reason for that is uh, the nose is extremely sensitive. So if you put a ring in the nose and you put rope, tie that into the ring, you can lead that bull unless they're some sort of a rage or something. And they will very gently go along with you because they do not want that ring to be pulled in any way, shape or form. And so I continued approaching slowly and I see this bull. Yes, indeed, the rope is just completely uh, intertwined, wrapped around all these long uh, grass uh, and just bunched up. And And he can't move. He's been there for at least two days now and can't go to the pond to even get a drink of water. It's very hot and that's not good for an animal. And so I go up to this bull and... I have a conversation with him, and I essentially made a covenant with him. And basically, that covenant was, okay, I'm going to set you free so that you can go drink water and live, and you're not going to do me harm. You're not going to be aggressive against me. We'll go our separate ways. And so we had this whole conversation. I looked him in the eyes. He looked me in the eyes. He seemed like he was in agreement. And I took a step of faith, a little bit scared, but I took a step of faith and I managed to get that rope unwound and released from the bunches of grass and, and uh, he went off to the pond and to drink and I went back up the hill to the teepee. It was on the third night that the Lord appeared to me. He appeared in the teepee as I was sleeping and when I awoke, he was standing there. And I was afraid to look him in the face because I, at that moment, I, I felt all the sin and inadequacies of myself, all the things that I had not been able to, uh, get rid of the, you know, those, those sins that reoccur and so forth. And I, I felt a degree of shame, but, uh, there was no condemnation from him. And he simply said, go to Missouri to the land of Zion. And this happened twice more in the night where after falling asleep i awoke and there he was and he said the same words now generally speaking if i've ever told someone this story i leave the whole side story about the bull out of it i I guess i didn't see the point of it other than maybe it's slightly entertaining but just recently in speaking to my father and telling him this story I went to bed and suddenly it occurred to me that there might have been a message in it. So the symbol of Ephraim is the ox. And in the Bible, the prophets speak to Ephraim and say that Ephraim has been like a bull. Uh, and the bull does not know its owner, but the ox does, you know, um, Ephraim has been stubborn. He's not taking the direction of his owner, his creator, even God. Ephraim was meant to be an ox, not a bull. And the difference between a bull and an ox, essentially, in case you don't know, is that an ox is a bull that has been castrated. He's still big and strong, and he can plow fields and and do work like that. In fact, they're stronger than a horse, and they can plow through ground that is uh very heavy with clay and stuff that where you know horses might not be able to and so that is the difference it's a difference of the circumcision of the heart it's a difference of the the man of flesh being set aside and instead becoming a spiritual being a new creation in god through that castration even the apostle paul speaks about becoming as a eunuch to the Lord, which is a a person who's been castrated. And so you take out all the fleshly-minded things, and you become a spiritual creature. And I realized that when I was praying and asking God about my own ministry and what I needed to do in the midst of all that, and just before he comes and sends me on my way to, to leave that place and go to Missouri, and that's why I'm here now, that he caused this uh, event to happen where there's a bull, okay? And this bull has become trapped, he's ensnared. The enemy has ensnared him and he can't move. He can't progress, he can't go on. In fact, he's on his way to dying because he's not getting the living water. Jesus has said that he would give us the living water, that if we would partake of that, if we would never thirst again. This bull was thirsty and he was dying. He was ensnared by the enemy. And that's how I see the restoration. That's how I see the Gentiles, not just Mormons, but Christians also are ensnared in bad doctrines and ideas that just aren't quite right. But especially Mormons, especially our LDS LDS, restoration branches were entrapped in this arrogance the pride and arrogance of the one true church. That cult that I joined was just a microcosm of the same old ill, the same old sickness that the restoration has. And it was represented in that bowl. And so that was my ministry to that bull was to set him free. And that is the ministry that I am to help the Lord with in these last days. And it is the Lord's ministry to set us free to set us free from dead religion, to set us free from the arrogance and the pride of the one true church, we may drink of that water that we need. But now this raises a question. So the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to me. And we know that it was Joseph Smith's testimony that when he was a child, he was asking the Lord what he needed to do to be saved, and that he saw Jesus, and that Jesus told him his sins were forgiven of him. I'm speaking, of course, of the first original and true version of that vision that was written in his own handwriting, that Jesus appeared to him, and Jesus appeared to me, and there may be some among you who have seen him too. Now, looking in 3 Nephi, Jesus says, And they understood me not, that the Gentiles should not at any time hear my voice, that I should not manifest myself unto them, save it were by the Holy Ghost. And so here's my question. If the Lord is only going to manifest himself to Israel, and not at any time will he manifest to the Gentiles, but only by the voice of the Holy Spirit, then how is it that if I am a Gentile, that the Lord manifested himself on the third night of my fast? Or how did he manifest himself to Joseph? Except that, By way of covenant, by way of choosing our heritage, we have, assuredly, both Gentile and Israelite heritage. We have both Gentile and Israelite blood intermingled. As it says, the Israelites are intermingled among all the Gentile nations. That includes England, Germany, Ireland, Scotland, you name it all the countries, even the Isles of the Sea. And so, if we repent as Gentiles, whether by adoption or whether by birthright, in either case, we come in to the household of Israel. You know, Joseph Smith would do a great work for the tribe of Joseph in translating the Book of Mormon, which is a record of the tribe of Joseph, and in particular, the tribe of Manasseh. God handpicked Joseph Smith and his name was Joseph being named after Joseph in the Bible. Now, do you think that this is a mere coincidence or was it assigned Did God intentionally choose a man named Joseph to translate a record for the tribe of Joseph and Ezekiel 37, 19, it says, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I'm going to take the stick of Joseph, which is in Ephraim's hand. Do you see that? And of the Israelite tribes associated with him. And I'm going to join it to Judah's stick. I will make them into a single stick of wood. And they will become one in my hand. Now you can argue about what a stick is. I did a lot of research on this and really when it comes down to it, the stick simply means a stick. And so it's symbolic and we don't know, it's not spelled out for us, literally a stick. I know it's been said scroll, but as I researched that, that's not necessarily the case. When you look up the Hebrew here, it means stick. So this likely is surely symbolic. But now we must decide what it's symbolic of. Well, in the Book of Mormon, we have a scripture in 2 Nephi which is a parallel scripture to this. It reads almost exactly like it. It says, Wherefore the fruit of thy loins shall write, and the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write, and that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins. And also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins. When you look at these two scriptures side by side, there can be no doubt these are parallel and they're speaking to the same event. One speaks of the stick of Joseph and the stick of Judah and one speaks of a record or a writing of Joseph and a record or a writing of Judah, and that both of these things, the sticks and the writings, shall be made one in the hand of God. And so there can be little doubt in my mind that these are 100% connected. So when we go back and we look at that original prophecy in Ezekiel, it says here, I'm going to take the stick of Joseph. So if that's representative of the Book of Mormon, as we read in the Book of Mormon, it says here, which is in Ephraim's hand. How does it get to be in Ephraim's hand? Ephraim doesn't exist anymore, does it? Or does it? So if we receive the record of Joseph from the tribe of Manasseh, and we repent as Gentiles, and come into the covenant, we are numbered as the house of Israel. Some of us, and I believe a lot of the people who originally settled in this country, are of the stock of Ephraim and Gentiles. And how we decide and choose God or not to serve God will determine whether we're counted as Ephraim or whether we're counted as Gentiles. And therefore, this prophecy comes true That the record of joseph or the stick of joseph is in the hand of ephraim that's pretty good evidence to consider now why has god placed the restoration of the house of israel on my heart why has he revealed this mystery in the writings of the prophets and why has he taught me these things and given me such a passion for it Perhaps because I am to join as a witness, as a cloud of witnesses, to join the other voices that are in the wilderness that are calling upon those who seek the truth to come out of the erring Gentile ways out of the church age and into the kingdom of Christ as his chosen people to become his covenant people once more to become heirs and joint heirs, to be numbered among the tribes of Israel, even as Jesus says would happen in 3rd Nephi.